I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. Why is for young Americans? Okay, so oh, um, we've said it before. I mean, I'm a fickle beast, Bobbert. You know that. I know that. You do know that. But um, and so my favourite album of all time kind of changes a little bit. But mm. it's 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 always a David Bowie album. Yes. And sometimes it might be the man who sold the world, which didn't sell anything, and is still a peculiar beast, but is amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, and nothing else sounds like it really. Probably the closest you could get might be Van de Graaff Generator. Yeah, yeah, mixed, okay. Mixed with, like, you know, the weirder stuff is like Van de Graaff, and he was obviously a big fan of Peter Hamill. Mm. Uh, but also then you've got Cream in there, the rockier stuff, which was the Ronson uh, kind of uh, the influence in there, really. Certainly, yeah, and a bit of Black Sabbath as well. But, I mean, there couldn't be more poles apart, which kind of mm. shows uh, Bowie uh, his true colours, really, because you've got the uh, the man who sold the world on one hand and Young Americans on the other, which yeah. is a soul album. So obviously, Bob, you're younger than me, um, and mm. so you came to this retrospectively. I did. You know, I'm eternally thankful for the, the way I came about, you know, getting to know Bowie's stuff as well, because I didn't know anything, I hadn't read anything about any of the albums at all, and I was just going on the uh, album covers. And of course, I went to Ziggy first, because it's such an amazing piece of work. And the Young Americans thing, no idea what, I mean, it sort of hinted at something slightly different. And when I got it, I just didn't know what to expect, especially coming after Diamond Dogs, because I did listen to those two in sequence, just uh, just by chance. Right. So I just wasn't sure what to expect. And I, I have to say, I didn't really take to Young Americans when I first heard it. It took me a long, long time to come round to it. Right, okay. I mean, it's a strange one, isn't it? But then again, the best albums do uh, sometimes mm, take a little bit yeah. of a while to get used to. And of course, if you get into Bowie, the stuff that you might have been aware of would have been the rockier stuff. Yeah, you know? sure. Just from hearing it on the radio. Mm. But I vividly remember that Steve Hanley buying Young Americans and going around to his house and listening to it. Right. And we'd had like a bit of a taste with David Live. Mm. Um, and, but uh, Young Americans, the single, is obviously just one of the greatest records of all time. Oh yeah, no doubt about that. So I was already kind of prepared for something a little bit different, but amazing. And then you listen to this album full of like Bowie crooning. Mm. And, and, and it was, it was a weird feeling. Uh, but uh, the weirdest thing also is the fact that it's probably the album where Bowie really did find his voice. Yeah, well, I know there are bits on uh, Diamond Dogs where he starts to find his voice, certainly. Sweet Thing. Yeah, Sweet Thing Candidate, you know, brilliant example of that. But then you look at stuff like uh, Rock and Roll With Me, which is definitely a pointer to young Americans, isn't it? That's the, It's Bowie, like the soul, soul boy, all of a sudden coming out. Yeah, and well, it's funny, you know, because um, I 
I spoke to Jeff McCormack, who wrote Rock and Roll with me, yeah, um, with Bowie, and he would talk about going to all the soul clubs in the uh, in the seventies, you know, and, mm. and, and in the late sixties, and 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 he wasn't even really particularly a mate of Bowie um, at that point in time, you know, in the late sixties, yeah, they kind of yeah. drifted apart a little bit, uh, but they were both really, really, you know, mad on the soul scene, unless we forget. Of course, it was the lower third of their auditions, mm. which were at the Giaconda Cafe. That's right, yeah, on Denmark Street. Yeah. That's right, which I visited with um, with Jason for cheap things. Mm. And it, it, the story being that, obviously, the band was already in existence and David Bowie turned up for an audition. Who else turned up for the audition? But Stevie Marriott, yeah. who is one of the great soul voices, white soul voices yeah. of all time. And Bowie got the job. It's remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> so there's something in there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, definitely. And also, it's one of those things, isn't it? So much has been written in the past about the influence of American blues on the whole R&B scene. And that seems to be accepted for sort of, a, you know, white boys to start playing the blues. But soul was a different thing. It, it sort of smacked. There was a bit of snobbery about soul, wasn't there? You had to smack of authenticity a little bit more than you could blues. Yeah, it was. I mean, people would always be disparaging, though it didn't stop like uh, Eric Clapton and the Stones and all of those, no. you know, picking up the blues and running with yeah. it. But not many people had managed to do it really from the soul scene, had they? No, not at all. I mean, you look at Stevie Winwood, Steve Marriott, great example, you know, but, but they are kind of few and far between. And then, so Bowie is doing Young Americans and he got there first and he kind of cut off all the detractors by saying, this is my plastic soul record. Well, the great thing is that if you listen to him, if you listen to his voice and his and his vocal performance on Win mm. and somebody up there likes me, you know, uh, just absolutely mind blowing. And also, uh, we've all seen that footage of Bowie on Cracked Actor, yes, at Sigma. We'll get into Sigma in a short yeah. while. Uh, but he's in there with these seasoned. Um, I mean, they weren't massive stars, but they were seasoned performers. So you've got like Robin Clark and Luther Vandross. Yeah, Ava Cherry knew what she mm. was doing as well. And and Bowie's in the studio, not looking particularly well no uh, and and he's there they're doing right which is a really really fantastically mm. complicated arrangement and he's jumping in going no he's and he's going bam, 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 you do, and they're like blah bloody hell they, yeah. look, they look a bit bamboozled <laughs> and then Bowie goes back and sits down and he's looking at him like you know stroking his chin keeping an eye on everything yeah obviously we know he was a genius but to be able to manifest itself in that way, in the soul scenario, with these people who'd been doing it before, and also surrounded by the musicians who were all had worked with all people like Al Green and that, yeah. that takes some chops, doesn't it, to go in and tell these people who've been living it for years and years, right, this is how it needs to be done. Yeah, and also just have that level of complexity. Because normally, if you're going to attempt soul, people sort of do it with a sense of trepidation, don't they? So you rely on a groove, really, and if you're going to work around the groove. But Bowie did it kind of the opposite way in. So you have these really complex harmonies, as you say, and he's teaching these seasoned people how to do that, or exactly what he wants, not how to do it, but what he hears in his head. So he had such a clear vision of what he wanted, which is just remarkable. So he's he's making it difficult for himself from the start. Can I do this? It's like a challenge, you know, to the kind of nth degree. Well, again, you know, from um, if you're looking at uh, Cracked Actor, there's the footage of him singing along to Aretha Franklin yeah. in um, uh, Natural Woman by Carole King. And and he's loving it. He's mm. just lost in it. And he's doing yeah. bow, the backing yeah. vocals and everything. <laughs> and he's taking it all in. And we'll get to all of the different inspirations in a short while. I mean, there's one band that uh, I know that you love as well. And I don't know too much by them, but the Ohio Players. Yeah, yeah. They were just so, so instrumental in making Young Americans the album that it is. Yeah, vocally, certainly. Vocally, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, obviously, he, he did Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. Yeah. So that was a, a doff of the cap anyway. But all of the really guttural, huh, 
all mm. that kind of stuff that Bowie does, mm. particularly on David Live and on Young Americans, that's lifted from the Ohio players more than anybody else that I've ever heard on a soul record in my life. Yeah, I know you're right there. Definitely. And if you look at Young Americans, I take my Beth, for instance, my youngest daughter, Beth. I think Young Americans is probably her favourite tune. Right, okay. Okay, she just, uh, she adores it. She adores Bowie, but she loves a lot of, uh, she loves a lot of great pop music mm. of this day. And she also likes a lot of the weird wonky pop music like Metronomy and she likes Radiohead and all that kind of stuff. Right. But Bowie is, is it for her. And, uh, and some of that will have been a little bit of brainwashing being sat in a car with me driving to Cornwall for six hours with Arcade and Trace. Yeah, no kidding. But um, when um, Bowie passed away, it was a couple of weeks later, I DJed at Sound Control. It was a Bowie fest. Mm. And they had probably around about 10 different DJs playing there. And it was incredible. It was sold out. And and it was a weird, very kind of emotional day, really. And everybody was loving whatever was being played because you knew whatever was coming next, it was going to be Bowie. Yeah, sure. But when I put Young Americans on... The whole place just went up, Bob. Wow. It just okay. went up. It was one of those hairs on the back of your neck moments, you know. And um, and they were all sick. All these kids, there must have been everybody from 16 to 60 there. Right. Right, celebrating the life of Davy Bowie. And all of these kids knew all of the words to Young Americans. Oh, wonderful. It, it really was. It was just, it was a, a very, very special moment. But it just shows you, you know, uh, the, how, how much Bowie has, has touched so many different generations. But that song, mm. that song, particularly more than any other one, I think is kind of like, is a club anthem these days. Yeah, you know? it is, absolutely. Pops more than golden years, you know? That yeah. is the one, as you say, it's got that reach. I mean, you've mentioned before also, I mean, like, we, we looked at Ziggy. Ziggy was obviously a massive influence on the punk scene. Mm. But Young Americans was, funnily enough, the massive influence on the following scene, which was a um, new romantic movie. Yeah, well, that was the thing. It's not really kind of appreciated as much, I never felt. I mean, you can sort of, you can trace it to bands like ABC, Associates, even Spando Bally, if you want to go there, you know, and right the way through to, you know, the new later generation of soul boys like Justin Timberlake, certainly. You know, and so much more after that, you know, that, that white kids can actually m- attempt R&B and soul and make it sound magnificent well if anybody disbelieves us which they probably won't be listening to this podcast if they did but if mm. they if they do disbelieve us all you have to do is go and listen to young americans so as we do on many occasions uh, on this podcast we're going to go now to uh, nicholas Pegg's brilliant book the complete david bowie and we always say mm. this and any day now really and david buckley's uh, strange fascination yeah if you've got those three Oh, you get all the rest as well, by all means, you know, but those three will give you all of the information that you need, really. Yeah, they are the holy trinity. So It's this... funny, sorry, Go I'm on. just going to say, because um, uh, I don't know if, did we do, we've been doing so many uh, episodes of this, did we do George Tremler? Did we cover him? In... Um, uh, we might have covered him when we did B for books. Right. <laughs> That's a long time ago, Mark. I think you're right, mate. But uh, yeah, George Tremler <laughs> was uh, the very first insight that any of us were given into the life of David Bowie. Yeah. And I got it when it came out. And I, I just devoured it and then devoured it again. At the mm. same time, it was um, A Diary of a Rock and Roll Star by Ian Hunter right, came out yes, roughly yeah. the same time. Yeah. And those two things just gave me a, an understanding as a toddler as to what went on in the in the world of rock, you know, and these, <laughs> yeah. and these superheroes of mine. And so uh, the George Tremlett was, was, you know, the forerunner. Yes. But these three that we've just mentioned are the ones that you really need if you, you need to know anything about David Bowie. Yeah, anything you could possibly want to know is in here. So this we're going to have a look at... Uh, Nicholas Pegg's setup for Young Americans, uh, writing about it in the book. He says, uh, I thought I'd better make a hit album to cement myself over here, so I went and did it. It wasn't too hard, really, Bowie told Melody Maker in 1976, a year after Young Americans had made him a household name in the States. 
During his residency at Philadelphia's Tower Theatre in July 74, David made his first visit to the city's Sigma Sound Studios to work with Michael Kamen on some new Ava Cherry recordings. Sigma was the home of Kenny Gamble and Leon Hoff's Philadelphia International label, whose roster of hits, The Three Degrees, The OJs, Stylistics, The Spinners, formed the centre of America's black music revolution. Songs like 1984 and Rock and Roll With Me had already hinted at David's enthusiasm for the soul and funk of the Philly sound, and his encounter with guitarist Carlos Alomar the previous April had confirmed his latest musical aspirations. Ten years earlier, during his time with the Manish Boys, David's most treasured album had been James Brown's Live at the Apollo, and when he met Alomar, his great dream in life to go to the Apollo was fulfilled. I couldn't believe it, he recalled many years later. Not only did Carlos know the Apollo, he was in the house band there. Sure enough, in April 1974, Bowie had told Rock Magazine that he had been going down to the Apollo in Harlem. Most New Yorkers seemed scared to go there if they're white, but the music's incredible. He carried on, I saw The Temptations and The Spinners on the same bill there, and next week, it's Marvin Gaye, incredible. In the spring of 74, Bowie was singing the praises of Barry White, the Isley Brothers, and even the Jackson Five, who he'd seen perform at Madison Square Garden. At the start of the six-week break in the Diamond Dogs tour schedule, Bowie returned to New York to mix David Live, giving Coco Schwab a shopping list of black albums he wanted to hear in preparation for his return to Sigma Sound. In the weeks leading up to the sessions, the US chart was topped by the likes of the Hughes Corporation's Rock the Boat and George McRae's Rock Your Baby, by far the biggest hits yet to emerge from the embryonic disco movement. So there you, it's Bowie having his finger on the pulse as usual, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And boldly going where a few white men had been before. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nicely put indeed. Uh, what a lovely phrase. So let's have a look at the background and recording, shall we? I think so. So beginning on the 11th of August 1974, during breaks in the Diamond Dogs tour, Young Americans was recorded by Tony Visconti, primarily at Sigma Sound Studios in Philadelphia. It was agreed early on to record as much of the album as possible live, with the full band playing together, including Bowie's vocals, as a single, continuous take for each song. According to Visconti, the album contains about 85% live David Bowie, which is remarkable in itself. It is, yeah. Well, it's the way you like to work anyway, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, in order to create a more authentically soulful sound, Bowie brought in musicians from the funk and soul community, including an early career, Luther Vandross, and Andy Newmark, drummer of Sly and the Family Stone. It was also Bowie's first time working with Carlos Alomar, leading to a working relationship spanning more than 30 years. Alomar, who had not heard of Bowie before, being called in to help with the album, said, He'll listen for a while, then if he gets a little idea, the session stops and he writes something down and we continue. But later on, when the music's established, he'll go home and the next day the lyrics are written. I'd finish the sessions and be sent home and never heard words and overdubs until the record was released. What a thrill for him. Oh, wonderful. I mean, he was carrying on. That was another common practice of Bowie's, wasn't he? He did that right through to the next day. He did, but mm. that, can you imagine Carlos Alomar? So he's been in and done all this work and not really heard much of Bowie's like uh, contributions to yeah. it, and then not hearing it until you get the vinyl in your Oh, hand. wonderful. Well, unbelievable. The song Young Americans, which Bowie said was about the predicament of two newlyweds, took two days to record, which is quite long for Bowie. Mm. Uh, David Sanborn, at the time a session musician, is featured on saxophone. The sessions at Sigma Sound lasted through until November 1974. The recording had attracted the attention of local fans who began to wait outside the studio over the span of the sessions. Bowie built up a rapport with these fans who he came to refer to as the Sigma Kids. On the final day of tracking, the Sigma Kids were invited into the studio to listen to rough versions of the new songs. What a thrill! I'll tell you what, mate. I mean, at this point in time, I want to put out an appeal to anybody listening to this podcast. If anybody 
was a Sigma kid or knows a Sigma oh. kid, if they can get in touch with us one way or the other, because we would love to speak to uh, people like that for our cheap things, the, the, yeah. uh, the, the Bowie Members Club that we run. It would be so great to speak to somebody who was there. Mm. So please, if anybody is one or knows one, get in touch. Okay, Fascination and Win were recorded at Record Plant in New York City in December 1974. Visconti then returned to London to begin mixing the album, or did he? <laughs> While Bowie remained in New York, unbeknownst to Visconti, Bowie took the opportunity to record with John Lennon in January 1975 with engineer Harry Maslin as co-producer. All right, so here's where it goes. Well, I'm not going to say slightly squiffy, but anyway, Across the Universe and Fame were recorded at Electric Lady Studios in January 75 in New York with contributions by John Lennon. They replaced previously recorded tracks Who Can I Be Now and It's Gonna Be Me on the record, though these songs were later released as bonus tracks on reissues of Young Americans. The guitar riff for Fame, created by Alomar, was based on an arrangement he did for the song Foot Stomping by the uh, doo-wop band The Flares. Yeah, you just wonder how close that is, because we've seen the footage of foot stomping yeah. on TV, and it's very, very close to fame. I mean, oh, we need mm. to we need to check that out and just see how close they are, but I we presume do. they never got uh, sued for it. No. So there you go. Uh, Bowie considered several different titles for the album, including Somebody Up There Likes Me, One Damn Song, Fascination, and The Gouster. Of course, The Gouster being, as it will unfold, the original version that Tony Visconti was working That's on. That's right, yeah. When he wasn't aware of the fact that Bowie was tootling away in New York, <laughs> with John Lennon and, and throwing all the cards up in the air <laughs> behind his back it was also at one point going to be called Shilling the Rubes wasn't it that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, shall we have a look at the artwork then so for the album cover artwork Bowie initially wanted to commission Norman Rockwell to create a painting but retracted the offer when he heard that Rockwell would need at least six months to do the job Blimey, he's going to go slow, isn't he? Uh, The album's cover photo was eventually taken in Los Angeles on the 30th of August 1974 by Eric Stephen Jacobs. Bowie's apparent inspiration for the cover photograph came from a copy of After Dark magazine, which featured another of Jacobs' photographs of Bowie's then choreographer, Tony Basil. The cover itself, as well as a cover type, was designed in New York at RCA by Craig DeCamps. There is absolutely no denying that David Bowie stole the idea for the cover of Young Americans <laughs> from that. And we've had this chat before, haven't we, Bob? But, um, and it was about Guy Pilart and, and Mick Jagger, where Mick Jagger said, don't show David Bowie your new shoes because he will go out and buy the same pair and wear them before you. Uh, absolutely. Well, so he did that. He, he nicked Guy Pilart for Diamond Dogs. Yes. And then, I mean, this is a different thing, really. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a magazine and it was an inspiration, but the inspiration was so close. Oh, no, it wasn't a, very, you know, a hugely popular magazine, you know, so mm. it wasn't like something that most people would have. But when I interviewed Tony Basil, probably about maybe a year or so ago, she was talking about this and, and she just sent me the picture of her, you know, taken by Eric Stephen Jacobs in After Dark. And it is like for like, you know, it really, to to every, even the way it's backlit, everything, the little cigarette smoke, you know, and, and the sort of smeariness of the lens. And we can't imagine any other cover though for young americans i wonder you know if norman rockwell had come up with something it just wouldn't be the same kind of package no um and and gouster the gouster thing was a suit wasn't it yeah yeah that's right which is kind of like the real sharp dude would yeah, wear you know yeah. so i mean and there have been photographs of bowie taking around that time so mm. we can imagine a different one but not the rockwell one like you say because we'd still be waiting for it yeah probably. but uh, yeah i mean the cover itself 
magnificent. Yeah, Absolutely. It is, it is. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah, just looking at it now. So this is remarkable. So looking at the, uh, you know, the critical reception from the time, in a contemporary review for The Village Voice, Robert Christgau, Chris Gow, described the record as an almost total failure and said, although the amalgam of rock and Philly soul is so thin, it's interesting, it overwhelms David's voice, which is even thinner. That is just wrong. That I it, don't know what he was on at the I time, this fellow. I mean, and, and he's, he's oft quoted and he's well respected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've talked before in the past about, uh, and it's normally on our sixth music programme, mm. uh, but we talk about an amnesty for journalists whereby they can just come out years later and go, I was a dick. I'm really sorry. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please accept my apology. And maybe, Robert, we would, but an apology was definitely needed. Oh, I mean, subjectivity is one thing, but I mean, there's some things are just plain wrong. Mm. Simple as that. Uh, he nonetheless appreciated Bowie's renewed generosity of spirit to risk failure. That's big of him. Following Diamond Dogs and David Live, which Chris Gow, Chris Gow had found disappointing. Oh, why don't you just give up, mate? Rolling Stone's John Landau praised the title track and thought that the rest of the album works best when Bowie combines his renewed interest in soul with his knowledge of English pop rather than opting entirely for one or the other. Ah, fair enough, okay. Uh, Shall you have a little look at Sigma Sound itself here? So, uh, as we know, recording studio in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, founded in 1968 by the recording engineer Joseph Tarsia. Located at 212 North 12th Street in Philadelphia, it was one of the first studios in the United States to offer 24-track recording and the first anywhere to successfully employ console automation. So I don't want to patronise anybody, but it, <laughs> it just means, I think that means a recall that you can have. So you can you you know you'll, you'll, you can make a mix and, and then just punch it in and it will keep that mix and go back to it. Oh, okay. I think that's what it is anyway. Right. Tarsia, formerly chief engineer at Philadelphia's Cameo Parkway Studios, also opened Sigma Sound Studios of New York City in 19. 19- 1977 at the Ed Sullivan Theatre building. Ah, from its beginning, Sigma Sound was strongly associated with Philadelphia Soul, and in the 70s, the sound of Gamble and Huff's Philadelphia International Records, its driving rhythm, a precursor to disco music, as well as the classic, sophisticated productions of Tom Bell. Both featured large productions with strings and horns, creating what became known as the Philadelphia Sound. Their success attracted many artists and producers from various music genres across the US, as well as Europe and Japan. By the late 1970s, Sigma was operating 10 music rooms on a 24-7 schedule. Sigma's longtime general manager, Harry Chipetz, managed the business operations and worked hand-in-hand with Tarsia in developing a staff that numbered close to 50 at its peak. So hugely successful. Yeah, massively. It's credited with well over 200 gold and platinum awards with an extensive client list that begins with Aretha Franklin and ends with ZZ Top. David Bowie recorded much of his album Young Americans in August 1974 at Sigma. Madonna used the New York studios to record her 1983 debut album. On the 15th of April 1972, singer-songwriter and pianist Billy Joel and his touring band played an hour-long concert at Sigma Studios. The recording of Captain Jack from this event received extensive radio play in the Philadelphia area, long before Joel became widely known, which helped him establish a national following. Tarsia sold the New York studios in 1988 and the Philadelphia location in 2003, but they still retained the Sigma Sound Studios name. Get this, the 6,000 unclaimed tapes from Sigma's 35-year-old tape library are now part of the Drexel University Audio Archive. I wonder what's in there. Somebody needs to roll the sleeves up yeah. and get in amongst that, don't they really, Bob? So let's look at the track list then. So side one, Young Americans, as we know, just, uh, and well, they're all classics. Oh, they are. Same thing, aren't we? Yeah, Win. I said it before, I can imagine Solomon Burke or Otis Redding doing that one. Yeah, Fascination, which was originally a Luther Van Dross tune, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, right, which you mentioned before. On to side two. So somebody up there likes me, 
quite possibly. It's funny, I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about albums, and it doesn't mm. matter. You don't have to have your favourite album and all that kind of stuff. No. But I, I, for one, can't help it. And I often <laughs> say that my favourite record ever, my mm. favourite tune, mm. is either Somebody Up There Likes Me or possibly All The Young Dudes, which right. is another Bowie tune as yeah, well. Yeah, but yeah. Somebody Up There Likes Me, that really, really gets to me, that. I just think it's incredible. I'm going to have that played at my funeral, Bob, but I don't want it to oh, happen yeah. just yet. No. Yeah, let's hope not. Yeah, it's a remarkable tune. And then, following that, we have Across the Universe, all right? Uh, right, well, do you know, Bob, I think we may have talked about this before. God, like you say, we've been doing this so long now. Um, but if there's one tune on there that I think could really do without being on there, it's Across the Universe. Hmm. And we know, obviously, he started, as, as we've talked about... <laughs> So Tony Visconti had gone off with the tapes think, thinking it was all nailed. Mm. And then Bowie, and, and and let's be honest, if he if he hadn't have started this association with Lennon, we wouldn't have got fame, which is one of the cornerstones of Bowie's career. Yeah. So it was it was right that it happened. But you have to wonder if it was a little bit of a kind of an affectation or mm. a little bit of a kind of a, a curtsy to John Lennon, including Across the Universe, because it's not a great... The, no. the Beatles version is miles better. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. But you've got to imagine, Bowie was probably flattered by Lennon's company, wasn't he? You know, he co-wrote... Right, with uh, fame with Carlos and, and uh, Bowie. But, you know, the, it is a very, very kind of flat version. I don't think anybody's particularly keen about putting it on there in the first place, apart from Bowie and probably John Lennon as well. Yeah, and the tunes that he left off there. Oh, who can I be now? It's going it, to be me. It's it's just, you know, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's all right, mate. It's, it's water Sorry. under the bridge. Oh, yeah. I'm, I am over it. It doesn't sound like <laughs> it I am. It doesn't sound like it at all. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave you to Can your you thoughts. hear me? Which is great. And then it finishes with fame. Yeah, of course. Okay, so uh, there's a, a Young Americans artist here from Ultimate Classic Rock. That's right. So here we go. So even though 1974's Diamond Dogs album arrived after David Bowie retired his Ziggy Stardust persona, the album still bore some of the hallmarks of that multi-platinum Stardust sound. But for his next effort, 1975's Young Americans, he gave his music a much more drastic overhaul. The changes started on the Diamond Dog store, which Bowie found tinkering relentlessly with his stage design and personnel during a series of dates that stretched from the summer of 1974 through the fall and morphed from a massive production into a much more basic presentation. The arrangement shifted too, showcasing a much more soulful side of Bowie's music, all of which, as it turned out, signalled a bigger change behind the scenes. All right, so uh, this is keyboard player Mike Garson talking now. He said it went from the East Coast to the West Coast as one band and came back from the West Coast to the East Coast as another band. I was in both of those bands. Uh, this was an interview with the Indie Ethos, incidentally. Most of the people got fired in the Diamond Dogs band, which is the one uh, we did David live with, and then we came back with the Young Americans band, and I was made musical director, and I had Luther Vandross singing with me and David Sanborn playing and six backup singers and two drummers. While he didn't completely understand the reasons for the overhaul, Garson had an intimate view of the way the new personnel influenced Bowie's next evolution. I don't remember what went down, but something changed for him, he continued. We changed bands in California and came back with a whole different thing, with a sort of soul vibe and the Young Americans vibe. Partly inspired by the flush of Philly soul acts hitting the charts at the time, Bowie reached out to the crew at the city's Sigma Sound Studios, intending to book a couple of weeks with the house band MFSB. After a few scheduling wires were crossed, he ended up only having access to the group's conga player, Larry Washington. No offence to Larry, but it's not much of a start, is it? Which necessitated the hiring of the band Garson described working with, an assortment of New York session players that included guitarist Carlos Alomar, bassist Willie Weeks, drummer Andy Newmark, as well as future stars Sam Bourne and Van Dross. 
Uh, I didn't know who Bowie was, Alomar said in 2013, but I did know this was the whitest man I'd ever seen. Translucent white. And he had orange hair. He was thin and weighed about 98 pounds. At one point, I said he looked like shit and needed some food. You need to let my wife make you some chicken, rice and beans and fatten you up, I said. Next thing I know, a limousine rolls up to my house in Queens. Very famous story, that, isn't it? Young Americans would catch some listeners by surprise when it arrived in the stores on March 7th, 1975. But producer Tony Visconti claimed not to have been caught off guard by the change in direction. He'd been working to put together an R&B sound for years, he insisted. Every British musician has a hidden desire to be black. Uh, Visconti expanded on that argument in a later conversation with performing songwriter in most British singers and most English bands grew up listening to early American R&B and blues. David was of that same ilk. He adored Little Richard and other R&B artists from the 50s. He was also addicted to Soul Train. He watched it all the time and actually became the first non-black artist to appear on the show, which, as we know, isn't true, which we'll find out in a second. We will. So it seemed obvious to make an R&B record, and what better place to do that than Sigma Sound in Philadelphia? So yes, that album had its own world and universe. Before then, I don't think we'd work with any black musicians. That album album to this day sounds terrifically fresh it's one of my favorite bowie albums if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Gino Vanelli was actually the first white act to be on Soul Train, appearing in the February of 1975. Bowie wasn't a guest until January 1976, by which time Elton John and the average white band had also been on the show. Mm, hard to imagine the average white band on that show, but... 
I've got another name for them, but I won't do it because it involves a swear word. Oh, Mark. Like most rock records at the time, young Americans came together quickly. So quickly, in fact, that Visconti remembered Bowie scrambling to fill out the running order with material, writing the song Win in order to pad out the album and using a Vandross composition originally titled Funky Music as the basis for what ultimately became Fascination. As Sanborn later told Blender, his impression at the time was one of orchestrated chaos and he had no idea what to expect from the final product. Those sessions had been so loose, he admitted, that I was shocked by how coherent it all seemed when I heard the finished track. Is that the greatest bit of padding ever, Win? Oh, padding, that is crazy. It is, isn't it? Um, But working on the hoof, and again, just going back to that, Bowie just turning it all around. For inspiration, Bowie also turned to Bruce Springsteen, whom he'd been aware of since seeing him open for Bowie's friend Biff Rose in 1973. Although he wouldn't see release until it surfaced with a previously unreleased material on his Sound and Vision box... Bowie attempted to complete a cover of Springsteen's It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City for Young Americans and even got to play it for Springsteen, who stopped by the studio while Bowie was recording. Yeah, so Bowie wrote later, he was very shy. I remember sitting in the corridor with him talking about his lifestyle, which was very Dylan-esque, you know, and moving from town to town with a guitar on his back, all that kind of thing. Anyway, he didn't like what we were doing. I remember that. At least, he didn't express much enthusiasm. I guess he must have thought it was all kind of odd. I was in another universe at the time. I've got this extraordinarily strange photograph of us all. I look like I'm made out of wax. It's funny, actually, because uh, I seem to remember that uh, Bob Dylan really didn't like Young Americans either. <laughs> I don't think he did, did he? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did a section on uh, Dylan, yes. didn't we? Yeah, we and did. And there were some really awkward kind of meetings there between was the two, very, weren't there? were very difficult exchanges. I'm quite sure that within all that, it came to light that he thought Young Americans was crap. Springsteen wasn't the only outside musician who drifted onto Young American sessions. Towards the end of the recording, Bowie met up with John Lennon, sparking a collaboration that ended up producing the number one American single, Fame, much to the lasting chagrin of Visconti, who'd left town to put the finishing touches on the LP. A week or so later, I was in London mixing the album and I got a call from David. Uh, Tony, I don't know how to tell you this, but John and I wrote a song together and we recorded it and mixed it. It's called Fame, recalled Visconti years later. He explained that he went back to the studio and recorded Lennon's Across the Universe for a lark and it turned out good enough to include on Young Americans. Mm. Mm. Uh, He later played the track to Lennon, who thought it was cool. Then David asked him if he'd like to write and record a new song together, which led to the making of fame. So he might have been a conduit to get Lennon in the studio. (laughs) Must have had some some purpose, I'm guessing. Slightly divisive, Mm. perhaps. Um, that period in my life is none too clear. A lot of it is really blurry, but we spent endless hours talking about fame and what it's like not having a life of your own anymore, Bowie recalled in a 1983 interview with Musician Magazine. How much you want to be known before you are, and then when you are, how much you want the reverse. I don't want to do these interviews. I don't want to have these photographs taken. We wondered how that slow change takes place and why it isn't everything it should have been. I guess it was inevitable that the subject matter of the song would be about the subject matter of those conversations. You can see that, can't you? It's funny, isn't it? It's so ironic because we look back at... We've covered so much of Bowie, obviously. But you look back at those early years and he's desperate to be noticed and he's desperate for fame and he gets it and he's like... This isn't what it's cracked up to be. Well, everybody says that, don't yeah. we? But it's better than just swimming around in a pool with nobody looking. But also, I mean, very poignant in this is the fact that uh, John Lennon and Bowie both ended up in New York for the same reason because yeah. they wouldn't really get badgered. Yeah, that was you it. know. And of course, they became firm friends. And then, of course, whilst Bowie was on Broadway doing yeah. the Elephant Man, John Lennon got shot, and yeah. all that terrible paranoia came about. So it's just it's really really tragic when it is. when you think about fame. Yeah, the song itself. 
just coincidentally, written by Carlos Alomar, yeah. but John Lennon and Bowie. And then, of course, it was exactly the subject matter that ended up in, you know, in essence, to John Lennon being murdered. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it is. It's, uh, it is tragic. Uh, according to Bowie, the song itself came together abnormally quickly. God, that session was fast. He said that was an evening's work. Whilst John and Carlos Alomar were sketching out the guitar stuff in the studio, I was starting to work out the lyric in the control room. I was so excited about John, and he loved working with my band because they were playing old soul tracks and stacks things. John was so up, had so much energy. It must have been so exciting to always be around him. Bolstered by fame and the top 40 success of the title track, Young Americans rose to number two in the UK and number nine in the States, turning Bowie's self-described plastic soul into platinum. Ever restless and ever more intoxicated by controlled substances, he had already started moving on by the time he delivered his 10th studio album, Station to Station, the following January. But it remains a beloved bright spot in a discography with more than its share, still warmly regarded by many of the musicians involved in the sessions. He was on rare form, Mike Garson told Uncut magazine in 2014. It was weird then, but the good music always sticks. He would have created that music with or without drugs. It just so happened he was on drugs. I think that at the moment moment of Young Americans, theatrics were not necessary, added Alomar. I think it was, I'm looking for the soul of Bowie on this record. I don't need theatrics. I don't need a mask. I am able to say what I want, say who I am, and be who I am. And there's a famous story, isn't there, about um, Paul McCartney, funnily enough, talking about John Lennon all mm. this time. Uh, Paul McCartney going around to Bowie's apartment in New York, and uh, he put on Young Americans, and I don't know whether McCartney was impressed or not, but then he flipped off side two, put side one back on again and started playing it all again and uh, and then uh, and he did say to uh, Paul McCartney apparently well you did rubber soul this is my plastic soul right. and then at that point <laughs> Paul McCartney said yeah I've heard it once mate I'm off is that the time is that right. the time already um, but um, yeah right. so I mean okay. uh, Young Americans it's just it is an absolute masterpiece it and, is. And, it, and it is a kind of a you know for any aspiring vocalist out there you can go also of course it, it came through in the next album not quite so much but if you listen to the vocals on Wild is a Wind mm. there's there's an argument for that being Bowie's best vocal performance as well, I think. Yeah, word on a wing as well, certainly. Word on yeah. a wing, yeah, just uh, incredible stuff. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Okay, Bob, we've covered Y. Let's move on to Z. Ah, we shall. And let's start, shall we, with Zoe Bowie, also known as Duncan Jones. Uh, Duncan Zoe Haywood Jones, in fact, is a film director, producer, and screenwriter best known for directing the sci-fi film Moon in 2009, for which he won a BAFTA for Outstanding Debut. He also directed Source Code, Warcraft, and most recently, in 2018, Mute. Duncan was born in Bromley, Kent, on the 30th of May, 1971, the only child of David Bowie and his first wife, Angie. His maternal grandfather, George, was a United States Army veteran, a mining engineer who ran a mill for the Cypress Mines Corporation, while his maternal grandmother, Helena, was a naturalised Canadian. Yeah, we might have mentioned this bit before. On the night that uh, Duncan struck Zoe was born, Bowie himself was at home listening to a Neil Young album when the call came through from Bromley Hospital. He arrived at the maternity ward, accompanied by Bob Grace, and proceeded to spend a few minutes admiring the wrong baby before a nurse pointed <laughs> out uh, Zoe to him. It's an easy mistake to make, <laughs> of course. They all look alike, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Bowie later said, I got the name Zoe from a Batman comic. This is a weird bit, you see. Mm. I'm going to tell him later that he can call himself anything he wants if he doesn't like the name. According to Nicholas Pegg's A Complete Davy Bowie, Zoe is pronounced like the girl's name Zoe, intended as a masculine version of the Greek word for life. Mm. But if it was in a Batman comic, <laughs> it's all kapow and zoom mm. and all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't really fit too well, does it? It wouldn't be Zoe, would no, it? No, it'd be Zoe, of course it would. It'd be, you can see Batman thumping the Riddler in the face. Mm. It's not going to be Zoe. No. It's going to be Zowie. Oh, but God. then again, you see the bottom line is that Zowie Bowie... And the weird thing is that I called him Bowie at the time. Right, so that would make sense. So it would make sense. Okay. This is just coming to me now because yes. I'm 57. But if it's right. Zowie Bowie, then yeah. that's right. It was yeah. a couple of years down the line that I'd heard the word Bowie often enough to actually, you know, correct myself. Right, okay. So if you're looking at Zoe Bowie, then... <laughs> oh, <laughs> or Zoe Bowie, that oh, really, really wouldn't oh, work. That would, mate, it's too much. I'm going to go on. with the Greek thing. I think that makes more sense to let's me. Let's move on. I'm sticking with Batman because Bowie said it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Surprise. Anyway, his Earth prompted his dad to finish writing Kooks, which ended up on Hunky Dory. The baby was born, said Bowie, and it looked like me, and it looked like Angie, and the song came out like, if you're going to stay with us, you're going to go bananas. Bowie premiered Kooks at the BBC session on 3rd of June 1971, four days after Zoe's birth. In an attempt to drum up publicity for Bowie in June 1971, publicist Bill Harry engineered some coverage in the Daily Mirror with photos showing Bowie and Angie pushing uh, Zoe in his pram outside Haddon Hall from the back. I think they were taken, weren't they? With long hair, floppy hat, voluminous pants and man blouse, the caption read, right then, which one's dad? Oh, oh right, OK. Uh, mostly raised by a Scottish nanny, Marion Skeen, Jones spent time growing up in London, Berlin and Vavy, Switzerland. He attended the first and second grade at the Commonwealth American school in Lausanne. When his parents divorced in February 1980, his father was granted custody of eight-year-old Zoe and he visited his mum on school holidays until ending contact with her at the age of 13. At the age of 12, he decided that he preferred to be called Joey and used this nickname until shortening it to Joe in his later teen years. The press reported that he went by Joe in 1992 when attending his father's wedding to fashion model Iman, where he was the best man. He reverted to his birth name around the age of 18. See, he didn't want to be called uh, Jowie, did he? It no. was Joey. That's it, absolutely. And uh, I do remember that um, that uh, Duncan came to the session that Mark Ratcliffe and I did with David. Oh, yes. Uh, at Maida Vale. Right. So, uh, and we've discussed previously in the War and Peace section. Mm. Uh, so uh, Jeff McCormack turned up, mm. but also Duncan. Right. Uh, and it was just weird to think that wow, we're in the room with Bowie's best mate as he grew up and his lad as wow. well. It was just, uh, it was a, yeah, a, a spectacular moment, really, yeah. as you can imagine. Did you recognise Duncan or did Jeff kind of introduce you? No, no, I never got introduced to him. He right. just came in. We were at Studio 4 in Maida Vale um, and uh, the, the audience were just on a little gantry above mm. uh, the, the studio itself. So everybody was looking down and there was that many people in. All of the steps as well up to the gantry right. were, were taken with people. And I think Duncan was probably on there with oh, Jeff okay. because it was all, I think it might have been Mark Adams, Blam, who organised the people who came in via, their, you know, Bowie Net. Yes, yeah. Uh, for want of a better word. And so the, the top was full with the people who were meant to be there. And I think the rest of the people were from like Nigel, Reeve was there for me, am I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, all of the stairs got taken up just because it was something not to be missed. But, uh, yeah, the fact that uh, Bowie royalty, uh, for want of a better phrase, again, uh, turned up, it was amazing, really. Yeah, incredible. There are some great shots of Duncan growing up, aren't there? Especially the ones on the set of The Man Who Fell to Earth, with him kind of larking around with Nick Rogue and, uh, and obviously with Bowie and with uh, Candy Clark. Yeah, and there's a really great photograph, though we have to take it as somebody else's um, uh, advice that it is Duncan, but it's Bowie. <laughs> I think he's coming through an airport and, and, uh, and little, little Zoe 
Duncan, Joe, um, is in a gorilla suit. Mm, I know the one. <laughs> which I, I love that photograph. And uh, he's quite big. I mean, mm. he's, not, he's not an absolute toddler. No. So I would imagine he's probably around about four feet high, maybe three right. feet high. Um, and and again, we, we touched on this, but you, you would expect that Davy Bowie, and well, we know that he was very, very private about um, about Duncan. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted to keep him, you know, away from all of the limelight. Mm. And there would be various reasons for that because of the madness, not only that, also, for, you know, with uh, what he went through with Angie, mm. you know, I think that I think that the relationship was described as toxic, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that was bad. But also, you would have to think that there'd be a, a danger of a, a kidnapping because obviously Bowie was uh, extremely wealthy towards towards the end of the 80s and certainly by 1983. Yeah, of course. And so um, you wouldn't really want your uh, your kid's face being plastered around no, everywhere, would you? of course not. Just mentioned as well, one of my favourite ones, I think it was in a, a promo tour, they were in a hotel in Amsterdam. It was around 74, I think. So you've got Angie on one side and you've got Duncan in the middle and then you've got Bowie wearing this great sort of like sombrero hat and uh, an eye patch. Yeah. It's a famous shot, isn't it? It's That's a great right. one. And, and Duncan's got long hair, hasn't he? He has, yeah. Long, long hair. Really cute. Anyway, so in 1995, Jones graduated with a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the College of Worcester. He then pursued a PhD at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, but left before completion to attend London Film School, where he then graduated as a director in 2001. Whilst growing up, Jones dreamed of becoming a professional wrestler, and his father frequently praised what he called Jones's natural strength. <laughs> uh, Jones was one of many cameramen at his dad's televised 50th birthday party, directed by Englishman Tim Pope at Madison Square Garden in 1997, and also at two Bowie Net concerts at Roseland Ballroom in New York City in June of 2000. Jones' first feature film, Moon, was nominated for seven British Independent Film Awards in 2009 and won two of them, Best British Independent Film and the Douglas Hickox Award for Best British Director on their debut feature. It was also nominated for two BAFTAs at the 2010 ceremony and, as we mentioned before, it won one of them. He then directed 2011's Source Code, a science fiction thriller starring Jake Gallenhall as a US Army captain who is sent into a virtual reality to find a bomber on a train. That's a great film. Have you seen that? I haven't, no. Oh, you should see that. Right. Uh, Jones directed and co-wrote Warcraft based on the video game series of the same name which was released in the summer of 2016 his next film Mute would return to the science fiction genre Jones had been developing the project for years and described it as a spiritual sequel to Moon and was inspired by Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. The film, set in Berlin 40 years in the future, follows a mute bartender investigating his lover's disappearance. The film was produced and released by Netflix in 2018. Through his social media, Jones announced his next project would be a sci-fi film centred around the rogue trooper based on the 2000 AD comics character. He's been married to Roden Ronquillo since November 2012. They've got two children. Speaking of filmmaking, he once said, creative arts can be painful. I remember my dad being beaten up numerous times by critics, only to have those same people come back five or ten years later and say that, in retrospect, the work was ahead of its time, was even revolutionary. Be patient. Good work proves out in the end. Absolutely. Uh, talking to the Associated Press in 2016 after Bowie's death, Duncan said his father taught him to believe in his own creative impulses. I think as much on the creativity level, his bravery and willingness to try stuff that other people weren't expecting, he said. Speaking about how he didn't follow the same path as his father, Jones added, My dad was obviously prolific in music, but he also acted, and I think I had the most fun when I was on film sets. I think I got the directing bug back then. Yeah, he continues, Because the musical gene did not express itself in the way one might have hoped, my main hobby with my dad was shooting little one-stop animations, and I just always carry that interest in film. Uh, paying tribute to the influence of his father, Jones said, He was a big gravitational pull on my life as far as 
who I saw myself as, how I separated myself from the world, and how I saw myself. Well, it's a good quote, but also, um, you know, his dad had a big gravitational pull on my life as well. Mm, and mine. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in the same club, Duncan. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Greetings, Earthlings. This is Jason from the A to Z of David Bowie team. And I'm here to tell you that we're currently looking at releasing the entire podcast series in a deluxe package. If you'd like to be kept informed of our plans, then join our mailing list by emailing bowiecheapthings at gmail.com or joining our members club, patreon.com forward slash cheapthings. And you can also visit our website, bowiecheapthings.com. Over and out. 